Please be seated. And as you are, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Exodus. That's the book of Exodus in chapter 20. And our reading this evening begins here at the 12th verse. Exodus 20 and starting there at verse 12. And beloved, hear once again the holy word of our holy God. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. This is perhaps an observation that we could have made months ago when we first began to look at the law of God. But friend, as we look at this text before us this evening, there really is only one of two ways we can see it. As I said to you before, we can see this as either bondage, or we can see this as liberty. We can either see this as a law that confines humanity, or a law that defines normal human behavior. Those are really the only two options that are before us this evening. And increasingly, in the world in which you and I live, those two options are set more and more in stark contrast to each other. There is no middle ground. Beloved, when we take up what is here, the the Eighth Commandment, you and I find that the law of God touches even that which the world largely sees as neutral ground. No, God as creator, as the one who is universal proprietor, comes down to man in his law, and he touches even man's economy, man's property, the tangible, those concrete things that he claims are his. God turns to man and says, there too is a law that I've enjoined. It touches even those. We can see that again, beloved, either as bondage or true human normalcy set before us. The command is simple. It is, thou shalt not steal. And obviously in its narrowest sense, the sense is that, that this prohibits the unlawful seizure of anyone else's property. You and I are not permitted at any point to take what is not ours. In other words, if it is our neighbor's, we are to respect his right as his property. But as we look at the scriptures, beloved, this this text and the ideas that lie behind it, of course, are expansive. There are many dimensions to this. Let me just read to you just a few examples. If you look at Leviticus 19, you'll find these words. Ye shall not steal... Neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. Uh, Note here how just with respect to our neighbor, this very command is broadened. It's not just that you and I are forbidden to take what is his unlawfully. 
But you and I are not to defraud him. And it's left in a very general sense because, of course, it is now here prescribing all kinds of fraud. No fraud is permitted under the Eighth Commandment, says Moses. But as you look at the scriptures, it goes even beyond our neighbor. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 6 puts it to us this way. God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. I want you to notice what the preacher is saying there. He's saying God has, in his benevolence, in his providential dealings with other men, he has given them Graces. He's, he's given them not, not spiritual graces that, that are in view primarily, but temporal blessings. He, he's given them rich provisions. But then he says, in the case of some men, there is something that prevents the one who has received those things from actually enjoying them. And then he turns around and he says, and this is an evil disease. In other words, if God has given men these provisions... It is an evil disease, it is an evil calamity if the man does not himself have opportunity to enjoy them. It's evil to have these things and then to lose them. But again, beloved, we can go even beyond ourselves. Malachi 3. God asks Israel, wherein have we robbed thee? They ask him and he replies in tithes and offerings. How can they rob God? How could they in any sense break the Eighth Commandment with respect to Jehovah? The Lord replies in tithes and offerings. In other words, in withholding that which God had laid claim to specially in his word. All of these, beloved, pertain to what we're looking at this evening. There is a way in which we can defraud our neighbor, ourselves, and even God of their lawful claims of property. And so the command enjoins us, you and I both, to maintain and preserve all lawful wealth. You must maintain and preserve all lawful wealth. And as is our custom, I want us to look at that under three headings. I want us to consider the command itself as it comes to us and is exfoliated for us in the word itself. And then I want us to think about its equity. In other words, the reasonableness of the command. And then lastly, we'll conclude with just a few examples that come to us from God's word. So take, first of all, the command itself, its essence. And before we begin, beloved, it's important for us to note that, that at this point, you and, I, you and I could quickly blaze past the principles that actually underlie the command itself. But we mustn't, especially in our generation. There are at least three fundamental principles that are embedded behind this command. The first one is is that property actually has real and moral value. According to the word of God, property is possessed of moral or ethical value. And you'll see why that's important for me to say in just a moment. Because in this text, it's very clear that personal rights to property have moral and ethical value. Well, friend, if you're paying attention to, to the kinds of theories that are now in trend and have been since the 1890s, you'll recognize that this is quite controversial. 
The word of God is saying that property rights are moral realities and are to be observed. And also I want you to notice too that behind this text you have the idea, as we've seen before, behind all of this is stewardship. How do we get there? Well, if we are to respect property rights, if property rights themselves have ethical value to them, then it's necessary that in every regard we are careful to preserve those rights, to maintain them, as we'll see in just a moment. So there are three basic principles that here the law of God already assumes. Property, value is an ethical reality. Personal property is as well. And stewardship is enjoined. As we look at this text, I want us to think about it in two ways. I want us to think about it as it prescribes all kinds of unlawful privation. And I'll explain what that means in just a minute. And then I want us to consider the duty of lawful preservation. So take, first of all, the privation, unlawful privation. Now, with regard to our neighbor, the word of God is clear. When in the the Old Testament, you remember, every family had its own particular land given to them. The command was, thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark. In other words, you are not to defraud your neighbor of that which has already been given over to them by deed and grant. That's Deuteronomy 19.14. If you move a property marker, says the law of God, you have stolen from him. Even though you have taken nothing from his barn, even though the man himself is unwitting, it is still a form of fraud. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, in measure. In other words, says the law of God, when you deal with men, you are to deal so equally. That is, there is to be no, there is to be no fraud in your dealings with any. Even if it's to your advantage, it's here proscribed. Now, with regard to ourselves, beloved, if I could take you back just for a moment to Ecclesiastes 6 that I read to you before. You remember that there the preacher is telling us of all of the good things that God has given. He says very clearly that, that it's from God that men enjoy those rich provisions that are, ne- that are mentioned there. But then he says, when those things are squandered so that the original proprietor cannot enjoy them, that's an evil. That's an evil. Well, just before that, in chapter 5 and verse 19, you read this. He says, God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof, to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And so, beloved, the entailment from that is very basic. If it is the gift of God that men have these these provisions, if it is the gift of God that man has wealth, and it's an evil thing for those things to be squandered so that he does not enjoy them, then, friend, that too necessarily falls under unlawful privation. A mismanagement of that which God has given is a mismanagement of the gift of God. And so it is a kind of defrauding ourselves, and so clearly prescribed in the commandment. But what about the command to lawfully preserve lawful wealth? I want you to think just about a few instances from Scripture as this comes to us. I'll give you the one that perhaps 
on a popular level, is, is the least likely uh, to, be, to be practiced in our generation. I'm thinking here primarily of what you have in Deuteronomy 22. There the Lord says, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. It shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it unto him again. In other words, the law of God comes and he says, finders, keepers, is contrary to the righteousness of the law. Uh, Friend, I want you to know that's quite controversial, but but that's precisely what the law is saying. If somebody else's property wanders into our presence, the law of God commands that we have such a care over our neighbor's rights that we preserve that thing as though it were our own. Protect it as though it were our own with the intention to return it to its lawful owner if, if, as the text says, our brother comes and seeks for it. Now, friend, I, again, I'm, I'm not speaking this to be inflammatory. I'm not speaking this as a kind of social pundit this, morning, this evening. But do you see how very clearly the word of God presumes and reinforces property rights? If you go into a university today and you study at all political history, you trace from Karl Marx and on, uh, friend, what the law of God here prescribes is quite controversial. The scriptures teach to us that property has real value. Communism is unbiblical. It is contrary to nature. It is not the case. It is not the case, as is so often forced on university students today, to think that men and their property values are merely a social convention. The law of God presumes, presumes that you and I not only acknowledge property rights, but carry ourselves carefully with regard to them. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But, but friend, that, that does raise the question. I suppose if I were dealing with, with the atheist interlocutor, the communist atheist interlocutor, he would say, see here you have, you have a law that immediately benefits the wealthy and oppresses the impoverished. Is that what the law of God enjoins? In other words, is this a law that really, that really only protects those who have and, and jeopardizes the health and well-being of those who have not? Well, friend, I want you to notice how the law of God itself answers that. I want you to notice just Leviticus 25 for a moment. If thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. It's not, beloved, it's not communism. It's not the socialist dream. This is not utopia. But what it is commanding men to do is not to be greedy. In fact, what it does enjoin men to do is to make use of their property for the common good. It is their property still. It is theirs to do with, and and, and they ought to do with, as God commands. And in this case, that command also requires them to look after those who are impoverished. Beloved, as we look at this text... 
this is a check on our society. Surely it must be. Because though the scriptures here urge us to preserve and, and really to cultivate the, the gifts that God has given, even to a point of entrepreneurship, it still does not legislate. It does not excuse greed. It requires those who have to make sufficient use of it for the good of their neighbor as well. And it does enjoin, beloved, for us then, as well that we make every opportunity to have gainful employment. This is, beloved, this is not just a reality in the commonwealth of Israel. This is something that's enjoined in the church in the new covenant. If any man provide not for his own, especially of those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Beloved, that's not just for the family man, though of course it's inclusive of it. If he does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he is to be treated as one who has contradicted the faith. Now, beloved, as we look at this, we see here that the commandment is broad. It requires us to be conscientious about property rights, to be conscientious in our economic dealings with men, to be careful in how you and I use that which God has given, and and to use that which God has given as something that has, in fact, been given by the Lord. But as we look at the reasonableness now, our second point this evening, we see that all of these things are grounded, of course, in divine sovereignty. As we look at the equity of this law, the first thing that we come to is the reality that God has a right. He has a right and a claim over all of the things this law touches. I suppose you, as, you and I as Christians, we simply nod our heads at that, and, and, and we ought to. It's, it's a truth, but I think too often it becomes a truism. When you think about Hosea 2 just for a moment, when, when God comes to the northern tribes and he comes rebuking them for their sin, he, of course he comes rebuking them for their idolatry, but, but do, you remember, do you remember how he deals with the aggravation of their guilt? It's a striking thing, and it's one of the most heart-wrenching aspects of the entire book. He turns to Israel, and he turns to them, and he says, you have, you have devoted the corn, the, wild, the wine, the oil, all of those things to Baal, and you've forgotten me. Moreover, you've attributed those things to your lovers. What the Lord is saying to Israel is, all of that material wealth, that property that you had, was from my provision. And friend, just for a moment, think about how mundane that is. The grain, the wine, the oil, those are very concrete things. But when God comes to his church, finds that she has forgotten that these things came from his hand, he reproves her severely. Beloved, would we be a different people, I wonder, if we looked into our pantries, our refrigerators, and really regarded all of these things as from the hand of God? Would we be as apt to squander our money? Would we be as apt to misuse what God has given, knowing that these things are indeed the gift of God? You see, he has a right to command all of these things of us, because, of course, the wild beasts of the field are his 
You know, beloved, as we look at this text, there's, there's another portion of Scripture that comes to mind readily. When we think about economics, there's something that we overlook, I think, too often, but something that's given to us in Psalm, Psalm 104 that, that's quite profound. You remember in the, in the 104th Psalm, the psalmist really gives us a, a picture, a panorama, if you like, of, of a world. And the world at work, both, both the beasts of the field and also men. I want you to notice just one, one particular part of that psalm. He says, the sun, rise, sorry, the sun riseth, they gather themselves together, that's men, and lay them down in their dens. Sorry, that's the beasts. Men goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. It's a, staggering, it's a staggering picture that we get there. The beasts of the field, those that would devour men, he says, they go into their dens at night so that men could then in the daytime go about their work. There's an orderliness that's been established. And beloved, the implication for you and for me, as of course we're not here worried either about lions or snakes, the, the fact of the matter is, when you and I do go to work, we're to remember that it is God's provision. He has secured us, not only in our travels to it, but he has secured the very act of labor itself. And so, of course, then he has right to legislate what we do with that. It is his to do with as he pleases. But, of course, the second element of this that we can't miss is this commandment really looks to stewardship. A careful preservation of our neighbor, but also of our own our own wealth. Beloved, these things have been given to us, of course, by the God who owns all things. And to what end were they given? I want you to think just for a moment of, of some, uh, some, some great landowner, some wealthy farmer. I want you to imagine that he, in, he entrusts the farm all of its equipment, its harvest, to certain people. What is the obligation for those to whom this wealth has been entrusted? Obviously, the entailment is, is that they, they are, of course, to preserve what is there. Obviously. But even as you read in the Gospels, as Christ pulls out similar metaphors in his parables, it's also incumbent upon those who have been entrusted to actually make good use of what has been given for the sake of the proprietor. And beloved, every one, every one of us has been entrusted with provisions from God. He, of course, is the universal and the absolute proprietor. But that means then that there's an obligation for you and for me, just like those farmhands, to make a good and diligent use of what has been given. That's not an option. Beloved, if, if these things are in fact the gift of God and all things are to be done for his glory, even the most mundane of things that we've been given, we are to carefully steward. And so, again, not, not to be a social pundit this evening, but all of those themes remind us that entrepreneurship among Christians is, is not only commended, it's required. At a certain level, every, every Christian is to be entrepreneurial, learning how to steward as much as they can that which has been given to them. And what is striking, what is striking is as you look at the history of the world, 
especially in the post-Reformation period, you'll find that, especially in Reformed countries, entrepreneurship blossomed in ways it hadn't before. And of course, there are many arguments, social arguments, that can be made for that. But not least of the fact being that, that many of the investors, the principal investors for many of the enterprises that eventually came to colonize the Americas and, and eventually became really the bedrock for what we now know as modern society, many of those investors were the most godly of their generation. And they saw it as an obligation to make use of their wealth, to steward that wealth for the cause of God. And that meant even investing in things that were otherwise mundane, but they did so because they understood that the earth and its fullness belonged to the Lord. And that these things were entrusted to them for his sake. Entrepreneurship, beloved, is something that is a Christian duty. It is something that you and I, in our generation especially, must, must revive. But as we close, we come to our third and our final point this evening. And beloved, we come really then to those examples that we find from Scripture, to the very truths that we've considered. The exercise of this commandment you find, of course, all throughout the law of God. You find, of course, in the Pentateuch itself, a commonwealth of Israel. A special care that was to be, and in many cases was in fact, exercised for the poor, the impoverished. And then as you move out of the Pentateuch, as you move throughout the history of the church of Israel, you'll find that the prophets came to Israel and upbraided the magistrates for not taking care of the widow and for the orphan. The princes were justly reproved. And so, beloved, you have there just really the instantiation of everything we've considered. The Lord God requires men and women to make ample use of what has been given in the way that he's prescribed it. But of course, the perfect example, of course, you find in Christ himself. Beloved, is it not, is it not staggering as you read the gospel accounts, that Christ, though he had, like Jacob of old, only a pillow for a stone, that the foxes had a greater domicile than he. Yet nevertheless, how merciful, how liberal was he with the poor. How quick was he to make even use of the small loaves that were given to him. And yes, through a miracle, but no less for the provision of those who are in need to feed them. Beloved, as you look at, as you look at these truths, we then, we then have to come away from this commandment mindful. That, that true biblical piety, it, it really does, it really does penetrate every aspect of your life and mine. It really does. And as I close, again, not, not intending to be a social commentator this evening, I think it's also important for us to remember that this too is under attack. I was walking down a street in Edinburgh a couple of months ago. And on my left, there was an old uh, church building, probably about two to three centuries old. I noticed it had been recently renovated. And of course, plastered all over its front was the signs that you and I are all too accustomed to seeing. Uh, all of the insignias of, of sodomy were there. But as I continued to walk by, I noticed that somebody, through graffiti, had put something else. And all that they wrote was Jesus was a communist. 
Jesus was a communist. Now, friend, I, I left that thinking to myself. That, that does show us where we're at, doesn't it? Every aspect of the law of God is under attack. It wasn't enough, according to the graffiti artist, that, that this particular body capitulate on the seventh commandment, violate the natural order that had been established by God. It wasn't enough. They had to go a step further, according to the world. They had to overturn the very truths that we've been considering. Well, that's the world in which you and I live. And, and the only true antidote that you and I have to this is to, is to actually ourselves remember that, that no biblical piety actually penetrates every single penny in our bank accounts. Every single item of property that you and I have been entrusted with, God has a claim over that as well. And, and beloved, the only way the world is going to see that, the only way the world is going to see that is, is if we find ourselves more and more mindful of what we've been considering this evening. This is a challenging commandment. I think perhaps far more challenging than, than we ourselves recognize more often than not. But, but it does remind us, beloved, that as Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not one square inch over human society that Christ doesn't declare mine. Mine. The exhortation then this evening is that we recognize that claim. That the Lord leads us to be faithful stewards of what he's given. That he would make us a thankful people remembering the source of all of these things. And that for his sake, we would be more and more a people like Christ. May the Lord make that true of us even this evening. Amen.